Chapter Seventeen of Roman Color Detective by Grace and Harold Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Seventeen. At a quarter after nine the following Monday morning, August eighteenth, Bill phoned his brother. Tim, I just got a call from the county prosecutor, and he'd like us to be over at the courthouse at ten thirty. He's going to hold a preliminary hearing. You go, Bill. I've got work to do. I have a football team to coach. Remember? You were to be here, too. There's already two dozen boys out on the field. Tell the kids to come back tomorrow. This hearing's important. So is this football practice, and I wouldn't disappoint them. This is my job, Bill. I've got to take care of it. I've been neglecting my duties too much this past week as it is. Did Mr. Tabor say whether or not he had the ballistic report yet? I'm eager to know if the shell muscles found came from the same rifle that Benteen found when he searched the house. Yes, Tabor said Benteen drove to Cleveland and had the test made there. It's the same rifle, all right. Well, you go ahead to the hearing. I'll coach the team. The kids will be disappointed that you aren't here, but I'll tell them you'll be around tomorrow. Okay? Or how about late this afternoon, about four o'clock? You'll surely be back by then. We'll get started with practice this morning, and then have another one when you get here this afternoon. The kids will love that. Two practices in one day. Is that all right with you? Sure. Go ahead and tell them. This hearing won't last all day. See you then, Tim. Bye, Bill. Father Tim got up from his desk, went to his room, and slipped into an old pair of trousers, old shoes, and a t-shirt. He was now the coach of St. Mary's football team. The clock in the courthouse dome pointed to twenty minutes after ten when Bill parked his car on Main Street and dropped a nickel into the parking meter. He had ten minutes before it was time to sit in on a hearing for a crime, which six days ago the sheriff and prosecutor had been trying to pin on him. It would be a queer experience, this hearing. When he entered the prosecutor's office, Jerry Laughlin was lounging across the rail around the receptionist's desk, talking to her. After they had shaken hands, Jerry said, Tabor will be right out. He's holding the hearing upstairs in the law library. More room there than in his office. Let's go up. The library on the second floor was not much larger than Tabor's office. Bill wondered why he had bothered to make the change. The room smelled dry and dusty. The two large windows at the end needed washing, and the high ceiling of patterned square metal needed paint. Two sides of the room were lined from floor to ceiling with leather-bound law books. At the far end, near the windows, was a heavy golden oak table, its top scarred by many cigarette burns. Jerry walked around the table and threw open both windows. Stuffy in here. Sure is. Wait till Tabor gets going on the guy. It'll be still hotter. Within a few minutes, the prosecutor entered, dapper and smiling, carrying a thirty thirty Winchester rifle with a telescopic sight attached to it. He shook hands with Bill. We'll get started in a few minutes. The sheriff's bringing him over right now. How about you and Laughlin sitting over there along that side? He pointed to the stack of books against the north wall. Tabor then pushed a chair over near the doorway and another facing the table, across from the large armchair which he would occupy. The clock in the dome boomed out the half hour. Tabor busied himself with some papers at the table, while Jerry and Bill sat silent, waiting. Through the open window, Bill watched the sun play on the branches of a maple tree. He could see the leaves moving gently in a light breeze. A squirrel, leaping from branch to branch, held him fascinated for a moment until it disappeared with a final leap into the dense foliage of the treetop. 
the sound of footsteps pounding on the marble floor of the corridor came in through the open doorway the silence of the room which had been mere emptiness now became weighty oppression with one accord the eyes of the three men went to the doorway through which sheriff Pentine was leading his prisoner frank stone there was an uncomfortable tension when stone his eyes averted from bill walked into the room and took the chair across the table from the prosecutor ben dropped into the chair beside the doorway and after a grin and nod at jerry and bill leaned back hard against the seat his hands clasped behind his neck he looked smug and satisfied it didn't make any difference to benteen who the prisoner was just so he had apprehended him bill thought as he watched his actions the palms of his hands became moist as he pondered on how close he had been to playing the role of the accused at this preliminary hearing thanks to tim and his mental alertness he was now a free man a court stenographer a middle-aged man thin and bored-looking came in closed the door and took a seat at the end of the table he laid out three sharpened pencils opened his notebook and looked at the prosecutor then tabor leaned across the table cleared his throat and looked straight at frank stone you understand mr stone this is merely a preliminary hearing and an attempt to clarify the various points that have come up in this case stone nodded you'll have to answer all questions by yes or no unless you wish to qualify or enlarge on them stone said i understand they went rapidly through the early routine questions once during that period stone glanced sidewise bloodshot sleepless eyes at bill tabor was at his best his questions began to jump from the present to the past and back again as if to keep stone off balance the prosecutor was a different man from the one who had interviewed bill he stung stone with his waspiness suddenly he pointed to the rifle on the table does this rifle belong to you mr stone bill heard stone catch his breath he leaned forward i didn't hear you the prosecutor repeated the question no sir stone replied tabor looked at sheriff benteen will you come forward sheriff and identify this weapon benteen walked up importantly picked up the rifle and looked at it is that the rifle you found in mr stone's home yes sir it's the same rifle deputy reynolds and i found it wrapped up in a piece of cloth in stone's attic behind a trunk that's all sheriff Benteen took his seat by the door again, stretched out his legs, and folded his hands across his stomach. Tabor again turned his attention to Stone. Did you ever own this telescopic sight? No. Did you ever own a telescopic sight for a rifle? Stone removed his spectacles and pinched his nose, as though thinking before he answered. No. Suddenly Bill saw the flash of white under the iris of his eyes as Stone realized what he had said. A look of guilt swept across his face. With an effort, he sought to gain control of himself, to explain away his last answer. Slowly, he put on his spectacles. I bought one once, but I don't think it was one like that. I bought it for a twenty-two target rifle I owned. I sold it, rifle and all, since. To whom did you sell it? I don't recall his name. Young fellow around town. Is it important? No, not at all. We know that on August 4th you bought this telescopic sight at Winter Sports Shop. Stone struggled for control. If you say that rifle and sight belong to me, my fingerprints would be all over them, are they? 
No, Mr. Stone, there aren't any prints on the rifle. It had been wiped clean. It's just like I thought, Mr. Tabor. Someone planted that rifle in my home. He paused and looked at the prosecutor, as if judging how he would receive what he was going to say next. And I think you know who that somebody is, so why keep on questioning me? Tabor made a reply, but only let his dead-set eyes show his expression of disgust. I said there were none of your prints on the rifle, but they are on the underside of the mounting for the telescopic sight. You failed to remove the sight and wipe under there, Mr. Stone. Stone goggled his bloodshot eyes at Tabor. All right, so it is my rifle. I made a mistake in not saying it was, because I was afraid, just like I was afraid after the thirty thirty shell was found. I knew that if you found out I owned that rifle, you'd do your best to pin the crime on me, just like you were doing. That's why I wiped the fingerprints off the rifle. I was afraid. Who wouldn't be? Tabor then presented the enlarged photograph of the head of a test cartridge case and the head of the cartridge case found by Muscles. For your information, the firing pin depression made in a shell is rarely exactly in the center. Note how the depression in both of these is slightly off-center, but exactly alike. What's more, the cartridge case we found out where Linton was shot had line impressions exactly the same as on the test cartridge case. The breech block in every rifle will make its own distinctive pattern. Stone began twisting his lower lip between his forefinger and thumb. Against the solidity of Tabor's mind and character, he had no chance. Outside the courthouse bell struck eleven times. For a moment a strange cloak of dignity fell over Stone. Then he broke and confessed. From there on, Prosecutor Tabor reminded Bill of a chameleon. His mood changed with the flow of the eventful questioning. He smiled, he frowned, and at times he showed anger. He was gentle, witty, charitable, indomitable. He chose the mood and tone of voice which suited each individual occasion. And so the sordid story came out. For over two years, Tedford Wilson, Stone, and usually some out-of-town friend of Wilson's, had played poker. Stone's losses had been so great that he finally put up his stock in the news as collateral for loans from the bank, where Wilson was president. When Bill explained how they knew that the friends Wilson brought with him were card sharks procured for him by Libby Santos, Stone filled the small room with the curses he called down on Wilson. Stone said he could now see it all, how Wilson had deliberately gone out to make him lose money, so that Wilson, in the role of friend, could help him retrieve his losses. He told how Wilson had cut him in on a 70-30 basis on the farm options picked up for the site of the dam in Galton. Wilson to get the 70%. In return for this, Stone was to do everything possible to get John Linton to give up his attack on the local site. When Stone saw that Linton would not change his mind about the dam and continued to print editorials in favor of the Hart's Corner site to arouse the public, he became frantic. He saw himself, a man without money, financially ruined, bankrupt. He couldn't stand the thought of telling his wife, accustomed to ease and comfort, that he had lost everything gambling. There was nothing to do but to kill John Linton, and then he, as majority stockholder, could set the news policy. That was when he went to Winter's sports shop and bought a telescopic sight. He had hoped to kill Linton during one of his frequent walks along the river. Then, with the festival coming on, Linton hadn't taken those walks, so he had to do it another way. Blake's murder was a mistake. He had thought it was Linton sitting in the room reading. His second attempt had been the night he slugged Jerry. He looked at Prosecutor Tabor. 
his face expressionless, his voice normal. That's the way it was. There was no need for him to say any more, so Tabor left it there in silence. However, it gave Bill Devon a curious twinge of something that was almost anger. He looked at Stone, his eyes hard and full of puzzled curiosity. Why did you try to pin this murder on me? The small perpendicular lines above Stone's nose grew deeper. I really intended to leave the pistol on the terrace without fingerprints. I wore gloves, you know. I didn't want to be caught with it in my possession, and I knew no one could trace the gun to where I got it. I bought it from a G.I. down in Cincinnati, after the war. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. We just happened to meet. But I did bring a revolver with me, in case I met someone and had to use it in getting away. Then I saw you, and got the idea to use your prints. I knew you'd eventually get out of it, but I figured it would confuse the sheriff so long that the case might be dropped, unsolved. Tabor looked at his wristwatch. That's it, I think. Jerry and Bill got up and started to leave. Benteen stepped forward, and his hand bit into Bill's shoulder, in a gesture of good fellowship. Well, it looks like you're all out of this. Yes, and without an assist from you. Now don't say that, Captain. I found the rifle. That's right, you did, after you were told where to look for it. But thanks just the same. Benteen watched him walk out of the room, shook his head. Some guys sure are hard to please. Then he stepped over to Frank Stone, jerked his head back. Come on, let's get going. Outside on the steps leading up to the courthouse, Jerry stopped. Let's stand here a minute in the shade. I've got a couple questions that need answering. Did Father Tim tell you how he got onto Stone in the first place? Bill nodded. When we were in Linton's hallway right after Blake was shot, Wilson and Stone came in on a sightseeing tour. Considering he saw that he had killed the wrong man, Stone sure bore up well. But when he was talking to Tim, he said he was going home and get himself a stiff drink. Tim thought he smelled wine on him. Then the other night when I was in the rectory, I smelled something and asked him what it was. He said it was DDT. I recalled then that I had smelled the same thing on the guy who'd held me up. Tim remembered that it was the same odor he had mistaken for wine. Ergo, stone. And from just that? Oh, no, Bill cut in. You told Tim that you had mentioned to Stone how Benteen was going to arrest me within 48 hours. That time was nearly up, and it hurried him into taking another shot at Linton. He wanted to kill him while I was still loose, so I would be the suspect. I sure played it into his hands. The guy had luck, but not enough of it. Tim figured if it was Stone who shot Linton with a rifle, he must have used a telescopic sight because of his weak eyes. So he had you look into that, and you found Stone had bought one not long ago. That really put the clincher on it. The muscles found out how Santos was getting card sharks to trim Stone. I suppose Wilson and the sharks split the plunder. The rest you know. The finding of the shell, my swearing out the warrant for Stone's arrest, the finding of the rifle in his home. I'm sure you're lucky to have a brother as smart as Tim. You can say that again, Jerry said. Well, I've got to get moving. I've still got to get back to the office, write this up, and get over to Mary Joe's by 2.30. We're driving up to Cleveland this afternoon. Bill gave Jerry one of his good-natured smiles. If I was going to stay around here, I'd give you a run for your money there, Jerry. Mary Joe's a grand girl. I could go for her. You and a lot of other guys. 
but I don't give the opposition a chance. I keep her dated up all the time. That's one reason I came back from my fishing trip up north. Sure, it was raining and the fish weren't biting, but also I got to thinking. Someone might be rushing Mary Joe. So back I came. How long you staying on here, Bill? A couple more days, if I don't get involved in another murder. The civilian life is too rugged for me. I'll be the happiest guy in the USA when this leg gets okay again, so I can pass the physical to stay in the Army. Civilian life isn't so tough. You just hit a bad break. Maybe, Bill started toward his car. I'll be seeing you before I leave. That's for sure, Bill. So long. So long, Jerry. As the noon hour approached, the sun beat down with glittering rays on the playing field of St. Mary's. Joe and Malone kicked a high spiraling punt which came down straight for Father Tim's head as he stood talking to Freddie Burke. Look out, Father! Muscles yelled. Father Tim looked up, blinded by the sun, and jumped to one side. He threw up his hands to protect his head, and the ball hit them and stuck. It was probably the most spectacular catch ever made on St. Mary's Field. Did you see that? Muscles yelled. Pride filled him, pride in his coach. Boy, did you see that? No team anywhere had a coach who could do that, Muscles thought. No, sir. If Father Tim had gone to Notre Dame, he'd have been the big star on the team. End of chapter 17 End of Roman College Detective by Grace and Harold Johnson